Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. Hello again, this is Jay Shapiro. Thanks for listening. The first thing I want to talk about is that there were two terrible terror attacks last week in Jerusalem, almost simultaneously at two different parts of the city. One was the very entrance of the city where there is always a large crowd of people waiting for buses or who are hitchhiking out of the city. And the other was in a large center uh, where there are a lot of stores at a different part of the city. So it's the first time in a long time that there were two apparently well-coordinated terror attacks in our capital city. Now, terrorism has been an ugly feature of Israel since even before the state came into being in 1948. There was terror against Jews even before the state became a reality. Now, also, and something you have to keep in mind, terror strikes, no matter who's in the government, terror strikes when the left was in power and when the government in the hands of the right. It struck when Israel made far-reaching concessions to the Palestinians and when the diplomatic process was stagnant. In other words, both when there was diplomatic activity and there wasn't diplomatic activity. It struck, before, it struck before there was a single settlement in Judea and Samaria, and it struck after. In fact, before Israel controlled the territories, terrorists struck, and it struck after Israel gained control of Judea and Samaria as it has control today. It also struck when Israel deported terrorists, and it struck when Israel demolished the family homes of terrorists, and even when the left wing in Israel called terror fatalities peace sacrifices. That's what the left wing government on Rabin said whenever there was a terrorist attack. It was a peace sacrifice. Terrorism struck when Israel used a heavy hand. It struck when used a lighter hand. The bottom line is terrorism is a fact of life here in Israel. And unfortunately, it will remain a fact of life here in Israel. As long as there is a Jewish presence, in this part of the world, there will be Arab terrorism. Now, of course, there was the attack we had last week, uh, two at the same time in Jerusalem, necessitated weeks of planning 
and it's highly unlikely that all the logistical pieces by the terrorists were put together in the three weeks since the election. In other words, you can't say that this these acts of terror in Jerusalem are because a right wing came into power several weeks ago. It, obviously, the planning for this terrorist act took place before the election. Second, terrorism is a result of a right-wing government, according to some people. Now, how do you explain that 29 more people were killed so far this year in terrorist attacks when the country was being governed not by a right-wing government, but by the most diverse government in Israel's history? It was a rainbow coalition that include the left wing and even include an Arab party. But then there was terrorism. It seems that terrorism strikes independently of who is in power in Israel, and terrorism has nothing to do with who is sitting in the government. What terrorism has to do, everything to do with, is Jews sitting in a sovereign state of their own in the Middle East, and terrorism will, will not cease, according to the terrorists, until that sovereign Jewish state ceases to exist. The attack is on the state of Israel, the Jewish state, no matter whether it's the left or the right wing in power here in Israel. Unfortunately, terrorism is a permanent feature of our landscape, and that that does not mean, however, that we should accept it. This is obviously not the case. We should fight it, we have to fight terrorism, and we should do it with great force and as best as we can. For every successful attack carried out, like the ones that happened in Jerusalem last week, Dozens have, have, have been prevented by the, uh, the Secret Service of Israel, by the Army of Israel. Is, Israel does not extract, it, it is not as though Israel does not extract a price for terror. Israel extracts a price for terror, but to imply that somehow there's a magic wand will make terrorism disappear is simply wishful thinking. Unfortunately, really unfortunately, terrorism is part of life here in Israel. It's been that way since the Jews first started coming back with the intentions of forming some kind of sovereignty. And unfortunately, terrorism will likely be here for the foreseeable future. It's, it's true and it's sad, but it's, 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 it's something, it's true. What is stunning, really stunning, is that the country, Israel, has flourished and blossomed as much as it has despite the terror. But in a sense, that too is misleading because terrorism leaves its footprint and you see that size of that footprint in the ballot box. And fully 75 members of the recently elected Knesset 
define themselves as right-wingers. I don't recall if I mentioned on the program previously, but I took a survey, an uh, unofficial survey among the people who voted in the election, whom they voted for. Turns out a lot of people, like in the Shuk, in the, uh, in the market in Jerusalem, or among taxi drivers, these are the kind of people you have to talk to to find out what the population is really thinking about. And many of these people to whom I spoke were Likud people for me. This time they voted far further to the right because as they put it, they all put it in one form or another, they said, we've got to stop the terrorism. And the right wing had speakers in, on the campaign, especially Ben Gvir, by the way, who's going to probably going to be the Minister of the Interior, but they spoke up against terrorism, and Ben Gvir in particular actually showed up at almost every place where there was terrorism. In other words, in all the big fancy things that people will say, the only experts say people vote for uh, economics and uh, foreign, you name it, the bottom line is people want personal safety and they will vote for any party that seems to be a party that's promising personal safety. And that is why a large number of voters who generally voted Likud, which is more or less a centralist party, turn to right-wing parties because they want personal safety. Now, the uh, that is why, as I said a moment ago, for 75 members of the Knesset, which has 110 seats, they find themselves as right-wingers. Back in 1992, there was an election in which Yitzhak Rabin, who was a left representative of the left, he ran against Yitzhak Shamir. And uh, the, um, the two left-wing parties together, that was Labor Party and the Marriage Party, won 56 in seats in the Knesset. 56 out of 120 in 1992. This time, they won altogether four seats. I think it's the Labor Party. I think Merritt's, I don't have the statistics in front of me, but Merritt's party, the left-wing party, went out of existence. It didn't get any seats. Till 1992, the left won 56 seats, and this time they dropped to just a few. The uh, the relentless terror over the last particularly 30 years are largely responsible for the decline of the left in Israel. Now, interesting, here in Israel, the things, thank God, we turn to normal after attacks, but the effects of the attacks endure, and they come out and they show themselves and how people vote. No one should be surprised. To understand Israel, to understand so much of Israel does, how Israel votes, and how Israel acts, is to understand the effect terror has on the psyche of those Jews 
who dwell here in Israel. And as I said a moment ago, you talk to the people, the man in the street, and I define the man in the street best by the workers in the market and by the taxi drivers who will be glad to tell you their opinion even when not asked. They voted this time for the right because they want safety for themselves and their families. That is the long and the short of it. Now, I want to move on to another topic very briefly, something you don't read much about in the papers, but it's important. There is a, uh, a burgeoning relation that uh, between Israel and the, the uh, countries that are part of the so-called Abrahamic alliance and with the nation of India. In the area of defense and security, India, believe it or not, is now the largest buyer of Israel military equipment. Exports to India constitute 46% of Israel's total arms exports. Israel is the second largest supplier of military equipment to India. By the way, the largest supplier is Russia. So it's very interesting. The largest supplier of defense equipment to India is Russia. The second largest supplier is Israel. That's something you don't, that's really under the headline. The, by the way, the relations, the growing relations between Israel and India is not limited to defense sphere. In the area of agriculture, water management, Indian authorities have partnered with one of Israel's international development organizations called Mashav, M-A-S-H-A-V, to develop methods to cope with an emerging water crisis. There's a water crisis occurring in India and they've come to cooperate with an Israeli company to fight this crisis. Investments in the tech tech field are growing significantly. The, uh, there's a company in Israel called Teva Pharmaceuticals is playing a large part in this relations between Israel and India. The, the evidence that the deepening connection between Jerusalem and, and uh, India is in a lot of areas. Uh, an interesting question concerns the foundations of this. What are the considerations and factors that have brought about this spiraling in relations in recent years? So there are two areas of one that are really worthy of consideration. The first is the area of geopolitics and strategy. As I said, it is, India is a buyer of Israeli defense products. That's one thing. The second thing is, is the cultural political sphere. The grounding of the alliance in civil society and public sentiment is important. <coughs> the the uh, Indian Israel face a common challenge and because they are Western-aligned states, aligned with the United States, 
which is the leader of the democratic world. So the what these countries are doing is establishing structures that enable long-term strategic cooperation between regional powers. The formal diplomatic establishment diplomatic relations between Israel and the UAE in August 2020 paved the way for a three-way alliance between Jerusalem, the UAE, and New Delhi and, and India. So that's a new alliance, the UAE, the, the, the uh, Abrahamic alliance, and, and joining with it India, Israel, uh, Abu Dhabi, and India. That's something new. One could not have imagined uh, uh, five years ago. It's got a name already. It's called the Indo-Abrahamic Alliance. It brings together the UAE, Israel, and India. So that's good. The uh, By the way, India's close relations with the UAE are, are based on uh, petroleum exports, and they have a very large Indian population working in the UAE, and they sent money back home. So the uh, UAE is now uh, India's third largest trade partner. Now, Israel's trade relations with the UAE have flourished since the signing of the Abraham Accords. So they have this, in other words, there's an emerging three-way alliance, India, Abu Dhabi, and Israel. The... Uh, and that's important. It's something that didn't exist before. And it's something that hopefully will develop even more into the future. Now, it's actually been expressed by uh, some of the leader, leaders in the UAE that uh, they hope that Egypt and Saudi Arabia will eventually form part of this group which in turn will be the basis for an atom, a Western-aligned security order here in the Middle East. And the second foundation of the alliance between India and Israel uh, uh, derives from the cultural-political sphere. At the most basic level, it's a geographic fact that India and Israel are located precisely at the eastern and western edges of the Islamic world. That's very interesting. Both are based on ancient civilizations. Both are based on revived sovereignty. And as a result, the decline at the same time, the decline of European um, strength, specifically British, we, who used to be big colonists in this area, has left at sort of a a, uh, an empty area which has to be filled in by somebody and the uh, doing uh, both uh, Israel and India essentially kicked out the British and uh, and, they, and they had a fight against their neighboring Islamic states so Israel and India on the two sides of the Islamic world and that says something strategically, something you don't have, you don't often think about until someone points to the map. So I, I just wanted to bring this up with the listeners because the uh, the growing um, 
relations between Israel and India, the two edges of the Islamic world, is something that doesn't get big headlines, but it means a lot for the future. And I wanted to call it to the attention of the listeners. I'll be back after the break. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. How did a nice Jewish girl from Delaware end up living in Israel? Shalom, I'm Natalie Sapinski. Join me on my show, Returning Home. Meet different people who have moved to Israel. Hear their personal stories, their highs, their lows, and everything in between. Each week, we talk to experts on immigration and the process of moving to Israel. Listen to Returning Home. Every Sunday on Israel News Talk Radio. You're back with Jay Shapiro. I saw an article the other day that was written by a gentleman named Stephen Flatow, F-L-A-T-O-W. He's an attorney, and he's the father of a daughter, Elisa, who was murdered in an um, Iranian-sponsored Palestinian terrorist attack back in 1995. He is an author of a book, and he writes quite a bit in Israeli papers. And we touched upon the topic last week that I think is important enough to mention in some detail. The Biden administration's Justice Department recently announced that the FBI is investigating the accidental death of an Arab-American journalist in Israel about a month ago. So you have to ask yourself, why isn't the U.S. um, investigating the murders last week and the intentional attempted murder of a Jewish-American citizen here in Israel? Now, just for the record, the United States law does not restrict the pursuit of terrorists whose harm Americans anywhere in the world and the uh, only to those who kill Americans. In other words, if you kill an American, for certain, the American law allows you whether, wherever the murder took place. It also includes anybody who attempts to kill a U.S. citizen. And that's on the record, 18 U.S. Code 2332. Now, Palestinian Arab terrorists have murdered 146 American citizens, and it has wounded more, more than 204 since 1968. Yet, not one of those killers has ever been handed over to the United States for prosecution. Now, Shireen Abu Akhla, as it was a reporter for the Qatari media agency Al Jazeera, and she was actually shot and killed while covering a shooting attack by Palestinian Arab terrorists against soldiers, Jewish soldiers in Jenin last May. Now, the incident has been thoroughly investigated by the Israeli government, by journalists, and the so-called human rights organizations. None of the inquiries could determine who actually fired uh, 
the fatal bullet, nor could they find evidence that the shooting was intentional. In other words, she was a correspondent very close to the scene of the action and apparently was killed accidentally. By contrast, the attempt to murder a Jewish-American singer named Naomi Pilkowski and other passerbys in Jerusalem on Wednesday a week ago was intentional. Palestinian Arab terrorists planted bombs in two Jerusalem locations filled with pedestrians, one at the very entrance of the city, which is always packed with people waiting for buses or trying to get hitchhikes. The bombs were packed with nails and screws to inflict maximum suffering on the victims. A Canadian teenager named Ayesha Chopek was murdered in this, and at least 18 others, including Naomi Pilchowski, were wounded, some of them critically. So we have to ask, why the double standard? Why is the FBI investigating the Abu Akhla case and is not investigating last week's bombings in Jerusalem? The Department of Justice of the United States has not yet com commented publicly on the decision to have the FBI, FBI enter the case of Abu Akhla. A spokesman for the Biden administration's National Security Council commented by heaping praise on her as a fearless reporter and expressing solidarity with her family, all of which, of course, is very nice. She had to an American citizen. So the question is, why isn't Naomi Pilichowski, the victim of an intentional attempted murder, not just an accidental shooting, why is she not getting similar attention from the FBI? Why isn't the Biden administration's National Security Council expressing solidarity with the Pilichowski family? Why aren't the senators who called for the FBI to investigate the uh, killing of Abu Akhla, why aren't they calling for the uh, investigation of this attempt to murder an, an Israeli, an Israeli-American? <coughs> Stephen Flatlow records and reports that he's had the opportunity to discuss this matter with senior officials of multiple administrations, Republicans as well as Democrats. The excuses he heard as to why they don't pursue Palestinian Arab killers of Americans have ranged from evasive to downright disingenuous. For example, they have claimed that the U.S. can't find the suspects even when they're hiding in plain sight by serving openly in the Palestinian security forces. Or, in the case of the Spiral Pizza Killer, wait, about 20 years ago, is they, her name was Halam Tamimi. She's now hosting a radio show in Amman, Jordan, so it shouldn't be too hard to find her. 
American officials have also claimed that nothing can be done because America does not have an extradition treaty with the Palestinian Authority, even though the United States frequently arranges for the transfer of criminal suspects from countries with whom it does not have formal treaties. In fact, the real reason the FBI is not investigating the latest attempt to murder an American citizen in Israel is the same reason as never pursued any other Palestinian terrorists who have killed or injured Americans, because it would interfere with the administration's goal of maintaining friendly relations with the Palestinian Authority in order to bring about the creation of a Palestinian state. In other words, it's for a political reason that they are not investigating these things. Now, the Palestinian Authority will resist any request to hand over killers of Americans since it regards the killers as heroes. For the United States to pursue justice, it would have to be willing to confront the Palestinian Authority, including putting political and financial pressure on the Palestinian leadership. However, the problem is that that would interfere with the Biden administration's warm relationship with the Palestinian Authority. So, the bottom line is justice, real justice is sacrificed in order to avoid angering the Palestinian Authority. That's why now the FBI will investigate the accidental death of an Arab-American in Israel who placed herself in a dangerous situation, but not the deliberate murder and attempted murder of Jewish Americans in Israel. That is why terrorists will be extradited and transferred to the U.S. from around the world but not if they are Palestinian Arab killers of Americans. And this, the bottom line, this is an outrageous double standard and will continue until American Jewish leaders make it clear to the Biden administration that they will no longer stand for it. This is what uh, Stephen Flatlow said. Stephen Flatlow, as I said, lost a daughter to terrorists more than 20 years ago, and he's been trying to get the American authorities to do something. The terrorists are known. One of them actually has a radio program in Amman, Jordan. But they are now, the American authorities, the FBI in particular, is trying to find the uh, what happened to a uh, an Arab-American journalist who was killed by accident several months ago. So it is a double standard, and it is really and truly shameful. Those, those who, who are getting a poor education, even if it's only up to eighth grade, are simply unable to take their place in the workforce. So the, what, what is the bottom line to this? It's a poverty trap which erases opportunities for those uh, ultra-Orthodox men who wish to pursue higher education and earn a decent income. And the numbers speak for themselves. Only a quarter of the Haredi, ultra-Orthodox men, who actually want to undertake academic studies, complete their degrees. Most drop out along the way simply because their education does, is not good enough to allow them to continue. Now, there are some indications that course studies are useful. For the 50% of Haredi men who work, 
their average wages are only are less than 60% of those earned by non-Haredi Jews, simply because decent wages are out of reach of anybody who doesn't have a proper education. The nature of today's society and the workplace today is that you have to get an education in order to get along and to compete. And there, in addition, there are the so-called Torah students. These are ultra-Orthodox men who did not participate in the workforce at all, as well as the respect shown by the community for those that are dedication to Torah the state also rewards them. They receive a variety of stipends and discounts, thus enabling them to earn without working. In short, they receive an income which is similar to the current minimum wage in Israel, and they do not work at all. However, if they go to work, do go to work, they stand to lose a significant portion of their income and the discounts. Now, in numerical terms, additional disposable income received by a ultra, an ultra-Orthodox man who leaves the, uh, the school he's in and goes to work is currently only a little over 3,400 uh, shekel a month, whereas the loss of income, some stipends and discounts amounts to about 9,000 shekels per month. In other words, you're better off staying in yeshiva and not working and getting paid an amount greater than you would get if you got some form of education and you actually went out to work. Now, the increase in yeshiva stipends is now being uh, uh, promised by Netanyahu and Likud so that the other parties, the ultra-Orthodox parties, will join, join his government. Now, if it's true... If they if do if they do this, the additional disposal income gained by working will drop even further. While the loss of income from stipends and discounts will go considerably. So it's interesting. Yeshiva students have no actual boss who expects them to show up in the morning. They can make up any income shortfall by working on the black market. So why would anyone give this up in order to get a real job? That's the question. So what is the bottom line? If Netanyahu's, Netanyahu's promise to increase the budget of all ultra-Orthodox educational institutions realized, the incentive to provide course studies will disappear. Course studies meaning math and English, for example. In addition, should the demand for the doubling of stipends be met, the incentive to join the workforce will decrease even further. In other words, the more that Netanyahu promises to the ultra-Orthodox parties to join his coalition, and those areas of education in particular will be essentially giving them money when they do not get an education, is bad for the country. The... Uh, Together, all this result will be a downward spiral as ultra-Orthodox men will be less able to study and earn a living. Their average wage would drop even further, along with the incentive to work. The employment rate in the ultra-Orthodox sector, which currently stands at 50%, could reduce to less than 30% as it was about 20 years ago. So the bottom line in all this is,
You don't have to be a economist to understand that if this becomes the norm for large swaths of Israeli society, Haredim, the Haredi population will grow even bigger, that that's something that's actually happened, and it will become even poorer. These are the facts on the ground today. Accordingly, what will happen if this growing population becomes poorer, the rest of the population, in other words, the people who work, will have to pay even higher taxes until they either buckle or they leave the country. And even if taxes were raised, the country would still be less able to fund services at the same level for the entire population. So the uh, <coughs> those who have uh, evaluated this come up with a, uh, a sort of a frightening conclusion. Although the Zionism brought us the state and we can live here, we may well end up, if the incoming government has its way, we may well end up sharing the same standard of living of the world's poorest countries. So just to sum up uh, what I said in this uh, portion, this segment of the program, the, the, um, the Tanyahu and the Likud party are forming a thin majority they have 65 of the 120 seats in the Knesset. So they have five more than is needed, actually four more than is needed for a uh, majority. And in order to do this, they will, they will pay off the Haredi, the ultra-Orthodox parties, by essentially paying them to have their students get money from the government without getting an education. And you will, and as the, the religious sector, the Haredi sector of the population is growing, you will have more and more people earning less and less money, working fewer and fewer jobs, and we will end up in, within a a foreseeable number of years to be essentially a high, a a, uh, a country that is poor. If the if the there are a lot of people here, non Haredi, both uh, religious people and non-religious people who are not Haredi, who will not want to carry the burden of this growing part of the population which is essentially living off them, many will leave the country. I can see this happening, and this will have fatal results for the entire country. So the bottom line, again, is when you look at the negotiations for the coalition that's going to rule the government, and you see that the Likud party is promising the ultra-Earth parties money for people who don't work, it's not simply going to be a financial burden on the others. We're going to have a growing part of the population which is unable to support itself, and it will be dependent on the others 
to all the others, whether they're national religious or, or uh, secular, and there's a good possibility that those portions of the of the of the population will simply say no, that we don't want to carry the burden. As it is, we carry the military burden. If we're going to carry the military burden together with the financial burden, and what's in it for us? That that's this is what the the coalition bargaining that's going on right now may lead to. And I wanted the listeners to be aware it's not simply uh, uh, the question of the Likud giving things away to the uh, ultra-Orthodox parties, but it has something that will affect not just the years that this government is in office, it will affect the future of Israel in a negative way as I understand it, and I wanted to share this with the listeners, so maybe when you listen to the result of the coalition bargaining, you'll have a better understanding of the long-time implications. I'll be back after the break. Howdy, this is Rita from League City, Texas, now living in Israel, and though my heart may have belonged to Texas, it now belongs to Israel and all the fantastic show hosts at Israel News Talk Radio. Hi, this is Michael Solomon from Kiryat Arba, Israel, and why do I love listening to Israel News Talk Radio? Because I love listening to the interesting interviews they do and their news reporting that most other media sources don't cover. Hey, this is Nicole Eko from Malmo, Sweden. It gets pretty cold here in Sweden, so I love cuddling up with a warm cup of tea while I listen to Israel News Talk Radio. Bruce Brill here from Nokdim, Israel, in Judea, the homeland of the Jews, and I love listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Hey, everybody, this is Frank Morris from Tennessee. Me and my dog Buster really love listening to Israel News Talk Radio. <laughs> You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Hello again, you're back with Jay Shapiro. Uh, during the last several weeks, there's been a rise in the uh, incidents in which terrorists are killing or trying to kill Israelis. Uh, just the other day, there were two incidents that happened in Jerusalem, two different parts of Jerusalem, and it's pretty obvious that this kind of uh, terrorist incident takes time to prepare. Um, I don't want to go into all the details, but uh, it was obvious that bombs had been planted uh, that had been um, set off from from a distance. And uh, the people who did this, the terrorists who did this, were not suicide bombers. They decided they were going to kill Jews without endangering themselves so they set off their bombs at a distance. Uh, one of them was the very entrance of Jerusalem, where there's always a lot of people waiting for buses and for hitchhiking. And so it was obviously well prepared, and it was obviously must have been prepared even before the election. So it's not uh, a response to a right-wing government. So there is a lot of fear, and the fear is real. The fear is the fear is justified. There's a, been an uptick in terror, and uh, the, a lot leads to a lot of anxiety 
and uh, people don't go out, people uh, don't take trips that they would before, they think twice about which bus to get on, things of that nature. However, it's been noted by some people, one of them is a social and political commentator by the name of uh, Mika Halpern, and he's the first one who mentioned that it is not an intifada. The authorities have not labeled it an intifada, and they probably won't. Uh, there is This is nothing like the first intifada. So I want to share a little history with the uh, listeners. When we first heard the word intifada was back in 1987. It lasted, uh, terrorism lasted for about five years, heavy terrorism, uh, and uh, the end of it was the signing of the Oslo Accords. Now, the second intifada was called the Al-Aqsa Intifada, and that lasted from 2000 to 2005. So the first one was six years long, and the second was uh, five years in length, which is interesting, but there's always been Arab terrorism. But these periods, which I just mentioned, they were more intensive. The uh, the word intifada the uh, means revolt. The common definition understands intifada as a popular uprising, predominantly of youth. So the word I started off in Arabic, and now it's used as uh, in Hebrew and in English also. When you say intifada, you mean a period of terror. The uh, it never it was not a popular word, but it became uh, easily off the tongue now. It's become a uh, common word. It was unusual for a word to be heard at all until Palestinians began using it to define the acts of terror they were perpetrating back in 19, uh, 1987. Now, now the interestingly enough, just for the for the uh, to enlighten the listeners, the Arabic root of the word intifada, which means to shake, is to shake something off. It's a, a shaking as opposed to quaking, the, uh, which sometimes, somewhat ironically, is the meaning of charedi or charad in Hebrew. In other words, uh, charedi means to um, quake. It comes from the word for fear in Hebrew. And so we call people Haredi apparently because they've gotten the word because they're supposed to be have fear for a fear of God. So they're called Haredi when you think about it. You see somebody walk around with a black hat and a black coat and his fringes hanging out, you say he's a Haredi. You don't ask yourself where the word came from. The word comes from the um, quaking, shaking. Now, the, uh, the that's quaking. Uh, shaking comes from an Arabic word. Intifada comes from a, uh, an Arabic word means shaking. So they're simply put, the Palestinians chose to call their actions intifada because the message, message they were sending is that they intended to shake off the oppressive Israeli occupation. That's what it's from. Intifada means shaking, to shake off the oppressive Israeli occupation. 
the uh, now the question is are we now in a third intifada so according to Mika Mika Halper we're not why the intifadas one and two were coordinated through the offices of Yasser Arafat they were funded recruited organized by the leadership of the PLO, the Palestine Liberation Organization, most lo notably, the, the guy who did all the work was someone named Marwin Barghouti, who's now in an Israeli prison cell. I think he's got a life sentence. Arafat funded the Intifada as a tool to get the world's attention fixed on his slice of land, he used terror to influence Israel and the world. Albeit an extremely flawed framework, the Oslo Accords did bring about the end of the First Intifada, but that was only temporary. During both Intifadas, terror attacks against Israelis appeared to be spontaneous. The riots and the stoning seemed to emerge, what today we would call pop-ups. Drive-by shootings appeared haphazard. But that was just a carefully constructed illusion, according to Mikko Halper. They were planned. They were tactically arranged. They had specific strategic objectives. Terrorists and rioters were paid. There were organizers. There was a hierarchy. There was accountability to higher officers. And it all began and it all ended with Yasser Arafat who was the top man, top of the pyramid, he would personally stuff cash into envelopes and dole out the payments to the terrorists. Arafat was the head of a terrorist organization. He was the key man, and he was the dictator, if you will. He was the one who arranged all the terror. Now, today's Palestinian leadership, as opposed to Arafat, does not have the ability to organize any significant work, work network. Today's Palestinian leadership can in no way mimic the organizational structure that Arafat and Barghouti had put in place. So what is happening today? What is happening today really is haphazard, not just the illusion it was once made out to be. Many of the attacks are perpetrated by lone wolves, often taking action after having been motivated by ISIS-type websites, and then there are copycats. I still remember my uh, several years back, my own granddaughter was uh, injured. She was in a course, uh, an officer's course for the army, and they uh, they got off a bus and a whole bunch of soldiers, including my uh, granddaughter got off a bus in Jerusalem and were marching toward a hillside. We have a very nice view of the old city and only soldiers there and an Arab driving a truck came by and he suddenly turned and uh, drove into the group of soldiers. He killed quite a few, injured quite a few, including my granddaughter. What happened was, as I see it, is that the, the Arab had been educated and brainwashed against Jews and here he was riding a truck in a Jewish neighborhood. Apparently, I don't recall the exact circumstances, apparently going about his business, going to work or delivering something. He suddenly saw a bunch of Jewish soldiers 
And if I don't want to say his mind snapped, but all of a sudden, after all this brainwashing, he saw a group of uh, Israeli soldiers. He turned his truck into the crowd. He, I'm sure he didn't get up that get up that morning and plan to do it. He was killed, by the way. But the point is that is the educational system and the propaganda system of what he hears in the mosque on Friday put him into a situation where he responded almost without thinking to these uh, Israeli soldier uniforms and drove into the crowd. So that that is not wasn't even planned. So it was really haphazard. And, uh, and that's what's happening today. Uh, many, as I said, the, these are lone wolves and they're copycats. They, uh, today, even if masses of Arab youth agree with the attacks, they're not running out to join a movement of terrorist attackers. They're not signing up to perpetrate other attacks or rushing out to join massive protests. Just like the attacks of, of the previous years, are not the attacks of today. The Palestinian youth, the first intifada and the second intifada back in the 1980s and the, the early 2000, they're not the same Palestinian youth of today. There is a full generation and a half difference between the youth of 1987 and the youth today of 2022. Keep in mind, the youth today the Arab youth today have been raised under Israelis. In other words, since the 1967 war, anybody born afterwards in the, in the territories, any Arab born there was raised under Israeli control. The youth of today would rather play computer games. Even if Palestinian leadership closed schools for a day and organized a massive protest, most Palestinian kids would stay home and play video games. That is not an assumption. It's been proven. That was exactly what happened when Hamas attempted to rally the youth and rile them up to face Israelis in massive protests recently, and Hamas was sadly disappointed by the turnouts. The kids today, the Arab kids also, are more interested and playing uh, games uh, on their on their uh, computers than they are going out and endangering themselves. The uh, Abbas, the new this leader now of the Palestinian Authority, and his cadre of Palestinian leadership have simply not connected with the Palestinian youth, according to Micah Halpern, who's done a lot of research. Young Palestinians do not believe that Mahmoud Abbas cares about them and their issues. Abbas and his, and his followers are totally disconnected from the younger generations. The leadership primarily of the Palestinian Authority is aging, and they don't know really what their youth would like, what, the, what, they, what they, their youth was raised under Israeli sovereignty, and it's a different kind of youth that they knew themselves when they were young. Interesting that um, Warren Bagudi, who's in Israeli jail, and as I said before, I'm not sure he'll ever get out, he was not perceived as part of the hierarchy of the PLO. 
Interestingly enough, he never wore a suit, never wore a tie. He acted and dressed like any and all Palestinian workers. He looked like the quintessential truck driver. That was the image he cultivated, and he led every protest, and he stood at the head of every march, as opposed to the rest of the Palestinian leadership who were suited, well-suited, and uh, when I say suit, I mean what they're wearing, and uh, they look like uh, ambassadors, and they look like diplomats. But Goody went to the trouble to see to it that he looked like the man in the street. And this, um, some people called uh, Bargudi an anti-intellectual intellectual. His image was that of a down-to-earth, working-class person. But in reality, Bargudi was apparently the brains of the Intifadas back in the 1980s and early 2000. He was the organizer. He was so successful that Arafat was jealous of him, so much so that Arafat once pulled his revolver on Bargudi during a meeting. Knowing Arafat all too well, Arafat's bodyguards had removed the bullets from Arafat's gun. In other words, they weren't. Um, Arafat was jealous of Bargudi. Bargudi was much more popular, and he wanted to get rid of him. And in the, their society, getting rid of him doesn't mean you vote him out. It means you, you, you bludgeon him out, you shoot him out. And that's what happened. he tried to do. So Abbas is not Arafat. The present leader, of the, the aging leader of the Palestinian Authority, who's, who was a terrorist. Uh, he planned the Munich massacre way back in 1972. And he was the one of the primary organizers of the terrorist groups. He was the one who arranged for funds. He was the one who arranged for supplies. But now he's aging, and according to some people, he's lost touch with the Arab man in the street. The average Arab below the age of, uh, well, uh, someone who was born, let's say, after 1967, he never knew any sovereignty over him except the Israeli army. So it's a different kind of person. And it turns out that no one in the Palestinian Authority leadership comes close to resembling Bargudi, who has essentially played the part of a man of the people. Now, only after Palestinian leadership gains the respect of their youth only after they appoint a dynamic leader can there ever be another third intifada, according to Micha Halpern. And what he, uh, that does not, however, change today's reality and the frightening uptick in terror. In other words, the, the bottom line of what I just uh, shared with the listeners is that it's not an intifada in the sense that it is not organized and it not is supplied by the leadership. The killing of Jews is almost, um, it's a response just to seeing Jews. And the, key, the bottom line, I think, in all this is the educational system under the Palestinian Authority. It is true, I think, that the, uh, the, the youth don't 
particularly care for the aging leadership. But at the same time, the youth is being brainwashed all the time from pre-kindergarten until they finish college, if they finish college. They are brainwashed all the time that the state of Israel has no right to exist. And not only does the state of Israel have no right to exist, but Jews have no right to exist. And that that is what, and, but there's no real organization behind the terror. So the question is, what's really worst? Worse, organized terror, the leadership uh, arranges it, or the fact that the people are so brainwashed against the Jews that they'll, they'll uh, perform acts of terror almost spon- within, uh, spontaneously. Like I, I mentioned a moment ago, the truck driver who saw Jews wearing their army uniforms, and he, he, I'm sure that he didn't get up that morning planning to kill Jews. He got up that morning, and when he saw the Jewish soldiers, he had been so brainwashed, it was like reading, waving a red flag in front of a bull. So, Micha Halpern claims that that is essentially what is happening now. In other words, there is no big organized from the top uh, series of terrorism taking place, but it is like the man on the street kind of terrorism, where the people have so been so indoctrinated that the very uh, presence or the sight of an Israeli uniform or an opportunity to kill Jews, as soon as that opportunity comes, they respond uh, like a, a knee-jerk response. Now, the question you have to ask yourself is, is that worse than organized terrorism or not? And the, the, I don't have an answer to that. My my general feeling is it's worse because if it's a knee, knee-jerk response and seeing somebody you consider your enemy, then we have a very serious problem. It's not an organized intifada, but it's a problem they're going to have to live with and something we're going to have to resolve. We can't stop it altogether, but we should be able to cut it down. Hopefully, that's what the new government will do. I'll be back after the break. You've come to the best station for hot news and sizzling commentary. Hello, I am Walter Bingham. If you want to hear the news behind the news and the true perspective on world affairs, then The Walter Bingham File is the program for you. We bring you interviews with the movers and shakers, political commentaries, and on-the-spot reports of events as they happen. All here every Tuesday, 4 p.m. Israel Time, 9 a.m. Eastern Time. And it's all archived on our website. Make it a date. Shalom, this is Nadia Matar from the Sovereignty Movement. At a time when there is so much disinformation, you have to know who to listen to to know what really is going on in Israel. Israel News Talk Radio is a radio where you can know that what you hear is the truth. You're back with Jay Shapiro. I want to talk about a uh, number of topics during this portion of the program. And the first thing I want to speak about is what's called this new life-work balance. It's a mentality, and it's now being called the Great Resignation. Now, I first became aware of this when I spoke to my grandchildren. Uh, One of my granddaughters is a major in the Army, and she's leaving the Army soon. And uh, I asked her what she's going to do in the future. And she started describing to me 
the kind of work she's interested in, and how she will shop around for companies that afford her the freedom pretty much to do what she wants. And that struck me as kind of odd. And I also spoke to another grandson who uh, finished the army. He went to the university and he has a job now in a high-tech company in Tel Aviv. And he started describing to me uh, his work time. Uh, he, sometimes he goes to work, sometimes he doesn't go to work. He's told his managers he wanted to go to Europe for a couple of weeks. And they said, fine. There's sort of a looseness in the relationship between the worker and the management, something I never knew in my youth or even in my adult life. So then I, I did some research, and it turns out there's something now called the Great Resignation. Now, what it means is that following the, the widespread deployment of work-from-home policies, that were due to the social distancing restriction of the COVID-19 pandemic, there, during 2021, the, there was a wave of uh, reports of workers resigning en masse due to burnout, due to lack of connection to work and a dream of greener pastures in which to work. Now, in the United States, an average of 3.98 million workers left their jobs every month throughout 2021. And that's a, a really a mind-boggling number. Almost 4 million workers every month left their work. While it was set off in, uh, in 2021, this new thing, which is called the Great Resignation, continues to plague the business sector. According to a recent research group survey of over 1,300 workers in the U.S., employee sentiment remains largely the same as when surveyed a year before. The respondents are citing high burnout rates, disengagement, and the belief that better opportunities exist outside the organization, as these are the primary reasons uh, behind their consideration of leaving their present workplace. And in fact, according to the research, 52%, more than half of U.S. workers stated they're currently looking for another job or plan to start looking for one within the next three months. 40% of U.S. workers say they look outside of their current organization for their next work opportunity. All of this is quite different. I remember years ago when I worked for General Electric, and I was about two years after I started working there, I received a nice offer from another company, and I consult with one of the managers, should I leave after only two years? And he said, well, you might get a bad name. People say you jump from one job to another. That was 50 years ago. And now you have people jumping from uh, one job to another just as a matter of course. Now, it's not only in the United States. In Israel, the rate of resignations in 2021 was close to 14%, which is almost double the rate in 2020. It doubled in one year. At the same time, the employee talent pool 
is low at the present time, so a loss of any number of employees poses a significant threat to a business productive viability. So understandably, uh, the human resources representatives are a little bit nervous. More than half uh, surveyed of human resources lead leaders and their companies that do this reported they're struggling to retain employees and to meet recruiting targets and to fill future needs of various skills. In other words, the bull has moved over to the side of the skilled workers who now more or less can dictate the situations and the think the situation in which they want to live in a company. So in order to prevent employees from leaving their companies, these human resource workers are now working hard to ensure that critical employee needs are met in a satisfactory way. Three out of four representatives of various uh, human resource organizations report in the paper they are either studying or implementing systems of agile work in order to engage their workforce. That's a great word, systems of agile work. Agile is a great word to describe work. Israel has seen a surge in salaries as companies struggle to keep their employees content with their wages and to prevent them from jumping to other jobs and better opportunities. The interesting, for example, and I'm talking high tech, in 2021, 90% of Israeli high tech companies raised wages by an average of almost 7% compared to the year before when wages went up by less than 3%. So they're calling this the Great Resignation. And a large part of the Great Resignation's effect on employees' work mentality is a shift in their relation to work with an increased emphasis on the importance of opportunities, the alignment of what they want to do with the company goals, and their own personal values, and the demand for flexible work options. As I said at the beginning, when my uh, my grandson described to me how flexible his work options are, and here's a kid who just got out of college. It's not as if he's an experienced worker who can more or less dictate um, his conditions under which he'd like to work. But that is exactly what's happening. You get out of college, you have a certain skill, the companies want you, and then you dictate to them how you want to be employed. This is true in the United States, and this is true in Israel. So according to the experts, the number one driver for people to change their job and look for alternatives is the company's culture. It's interesting, company culture, it, 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 apparently companies have a culture that existed since there have been companies, but we never sort of thought of it that way. So according to the experts, if the DNA of a business is built on trust, transparency, teamwork, putting its people first, and investing in the well-being of their employees, that company should be likely to have very high retention. That's first. 
Number two is career development. The employees ask themselves an interesting question, and indeed, I heard this from my own grandson. Am I surrounded by great people that I can learn from? Do I feel that they have an impact on the business? Now, interestingly enough, the last thing on the list is compensation. In other words, it's not the salary that draws people into the high-tech industry, both here and the United States. And I don't know what the situation is in Europe, but the, the research that I've seen is primarily based on Israel and the United States. And the people, it's that salary that comes first. It's other things, like can I develop myself? And can I have a lot of loose time that I can use for what I want? So what's happened is the great resignation, as it's now being called, has forever changed the way workers view their work, at least in high tech. It's a new era. Instead of work-life balance, it's life-work balance. Life comes first, work goes after. So this is certainly an, a, an evolution from the work ethics and mentalities of the past generations like the one that I grew up in. Life came second, work came first. You had to make a living. Today, you not, the life comes first, and you have to find a job that will meet your life requirements. So if, if I look at my father and my grandfather and even myself, we followed the same work patterns for decades. You work full time in an office or in a factory in in a big cities. When uh, I got home, I wasn't connected to my job. My father happened to have a business uh, that we lived behind the store, a truck store, in a sense he was connected to his job. But most people who went to work came home and forgot about their job till the next morning. In other words, there was full isolation between work and life. Now, all of a sudden, here in Israel and in the United States, because of the new mindset that the new generation brought to the market. So this new generation of workers say life first, work second. This is a mentality that will dictate the future of the labor market, at least as far as high-tech is concerned. And keep in mind that Israel is a high-tech nation. We have no natural resources. We have no iron. We have no coal. We, we can't dig and find anything. The only thing we find when we dig here is the people the sites of people lived 3,000 or 4,000 years ago. We don't find any elements that we can use in our daily life. So if we're a high-tech country, and now it's an altogether different uh, ball game than it was when I was a kid. So life first, work second is a mentality, as I said, will dictate the future of the labor market in Israel and in the United States. They'll dominate the market in the next five or ten years. They will be the managers that set the tone, and from their perspective, it's all about well-being of the worker. If, if someone asks your father what his identity is at a social event, 
They'll talk about his profession first. They'd say, I'm an engineer, I'm a doctor, I'm a, I'm a druggist, whatever. Today, interestingly enough, there is no direct correlation between how you identify yourself and what you do to make a living. So that's number one. There's no, no identification between yourself personally and the way you make a living. Another facet of this new employer mindset is the dead set demand of hybrid work models. Is it, uh, I'm not quite sure what it is, but according to the experts, uh, the, the hybrid work is something that's developing. To the, in other words, hybrid, as I understand it, means I don't have to come to work all the time. As long as I, I do what I'm supposed to do, I can stay home and report in and meet all the requirements of my job. Employees who are forcing their people to come back to the office are going to lose this battle. In other words, the ball is now in the hands of the employee as far as high tech is concerned, both in the United States and here in Israel. You can't force the issue. As one expert said, the train left the station. This is a practice for the new era, and who knows how long it will last. Now it seems that around the world, this hybrid work model where you work at home or you go into the office has rooted itself deeply in the expectation of office workers. There, by the way, this was reinforced by several leading experts during a panel that was held here in Israel. It was a conference held earlier this month by the Herzog Law Firm. And, uh, and it was a panel. And one of the experts said, and I quote, in Israel, remote work is here to stay. While the norm is in the high-tech sector, in the public sector, working remotely has been addressed in a collective agreement. Most employers use a hybrid model in which the employer can decide how much and when employees, employees work remotely. That's interesting. Again, I... I became wise to this issue by talking to my grandchildren. So they have an, they're making a collective agreement between the workers and the company. And in general, the collective agreement states that employees will be entitled to all salary and benefits in remote work, as well as coming into the office. So now remote work is, is part of the prerogative of the worker and his employer. Something that's all new, and I bring it up because it's happening in Israel, as indeed it's happening to the United States. In a sense, again, I'm only speaking about the uh, high-tech industry. I mean, there's other industries where we just have to be there. If, you, uh, if you're making something, you're making clothing, or you're making shoes, you got to be there to do it. But high-tech involves a lot of things that are just not physical, that people sitting at their desk. And that you can do just as well from home as you can do it in the office. And by the way, another development, which I think is a negative one, 
people at, at uh, work from their desks at home do not mix together with other employees. In many cases, they might not even know them. People working with the same company who essentially work out of the same office but don't show up at the office, you don't really know who, the, who they are. And in my mind, this goes along with the increase of um, of the use of uh, handheld handheld telephones. You know that everybody has a telephone now. I probably mentioned on this program previously uh, when I in the morning I pass the same people every morning when I'm on my, on my way to the synagogue. I pass roughly six people uh, every morning. And they have the um, their earphones are in their ear, and they're talking or listening to their telephone, and uh, they don't bother to look up when I say hello. In other words, there's an alienation now, and this alienation is repeating itself in the workplace. Now the question is, what is this going to do to society? I'm not a sociologist. I don't know. Books are starting to be written about this phenomenon. I worry about it in particular here in Israel because we are a relatively small society and we have a lot of dangers, particularly on our borders. And it's very important that we feel that we belong to each other, that we have common interests, and that we can't be alienated from each other. So when you, you reach a point now where you go down the street and you see the same people every morning and they don't look up from their telephones, I think this can have a negative effect on the society when push comes to shove. I like to feel, it's just interesting by the way, I remember when I used to do a reserve duty in the army, uh, people came together from all walks of life. Uh, bus drivers and physicists and you name it, we were in the same group and we got to know each other. As a matter of fact, I once had an incident. I was almost, I went to visit Haifa one day and I was almost run over by a bus. And I looked at the driver who was waving at me. He, uh, somebody I knew from reserve duty and he wanted to say hello to me. He almost killed me by going over the right side of the road. But that, that's, that's, that's an aside. But, the high-tech society is becoming an alienated society, and that is something that Israel for sure cannot afford. We have to feel that we are closely related to each other because we are an endangered society, and we have to be able to rely on each other. So high-tech is something that has good, obviously has a, good purposes and good results, but it might have some social results that are not good for, for Israel, maybe for the United States also, probably so, for any society, certainly it could end up being dangerous for Israel. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening. Until next time, Jay Shapiro signing. If you love Israel News Talk Radio, then you'll love our Facebook page. We keep you up to date on what's happening in Israel, plus little surprise treasures that we don't share on the radio. Go now to follow us on Facebook. 
Just look for the Israel News Talk Radio Facebook page. And don't forget to subscribe and follow us by clicking on the like button. We post great stuff there that you'll want to share. Israel News Talk Radio on Facebook and Israel News Radio on Twitter. If you're hearing this message, everyone else can too. Advertise with Israel News Talk Radio and get your message out to people. We'll build a personalized package for you. Contact advertising at IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. Straight talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Hey, this is Jake in Anchorage, Alaska, and I love listening to all the super interesting interviews and up-to-date information on what's happening in Israel. Hello, this is Anna King, originally from London, now living in Israel. And what can I say? Israel News Talk Radio is my cup of tea. My name is Bhaskar. I'm from India, and I love listening because you get to know the truth and wonderful voices from this lovely country. Mom! Okay, wait a minute. Hi, this is Chava Dax, and I'm calling for the rolling hills of Malaya Dumim, just north of Jerusalem. I always listen to Israel News Talk Radio to get all the latest news and commentary and to keep me up to date every day. This is Sarah Dax from Malaya Dumim, and I'm 12. I wish Israel News Talk Radio was boring so my mom wouldn't listen to it all the time. Mom! You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. News, opinion, and more. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. 